I'm going to be reading the entire chapter, First uh, Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 to 22. Hear now God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought them there, or brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and was told the news, all the city, cri- all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli, now, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat By the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. When she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. And so ends the reading of God's word. And what do we know about God's word? It is no empty word for us, but our very life. Let's pray together. Father, this is indeed your word. We pray that you would give us ears to hear it, help us to be attentive to it. I pray that you would instruct us, you would inform us, you would transform us. 
Help us to see the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ, your Son. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. No sooner have we been told of the Lord's call on Samuel by the Lord to, um, to serve in a prophetic ministry, speaking the word of the Lord to God's people. No sooner have we heard this, uh, Samuel is whisked away from the storyline, not to be seen again until chapter 7. And until that time, neither Samuel nor Eli, and not even the people of God, are the central character of God's story, but indeed the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. But it was the people of God that brought the Ark into the story, Uh, Seemingly out of nowhere, the Philistines show up in the scene. Now, the Philistines, I'm sure you remember those Philistines. Goliath of Gath was one of the Philistines. Philistines were enemies of God's people who actually lived within the geographical boundaries of the land of promise. They were on the western side, right by the Mediterranean Sea. And the last time we heard of the Philistines in the story of redemption was in the time of the judges, when the judge Samuel conquered the Philistines, and yet they apparently had survived and had um, thrived and, and come back into prominence. And they came up to battle against Israel, and Israel was defeated. And about 4,000 of Israelite soldiers were killed that day. And the elders of Israel were stunned. And they began to ask, why? Why have we been defeated, or more to the point, they say, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They ascribed to the Lord this defeat, his sovereign hand in their defeat. And it was a legitimate question. For had the Lord not said to Abraham, their father, Abram, fear not, I am your shield. And God had said over and over and over these very words. He said to Abraham, and to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will be with you. I will be with you. And to Moses, he said, Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I will be with you. And to Joshua, he said, go attack Jericho, for I will be with you, and you will be victorious. To Gideon, he said, go attack the Midianites, for I will be with you. And yet here they are. They've just been defeated by the Philistines, and so they're asking, why? Why has the Lord done this? So they ask the question, it's a legitimate question, but they seem to only ask themselves. They don't ask the Lord why he has done this. God had provided for them Samuel, prophet of the Lord, one who spoke on God's behalf, but there's no indication that they went to Samuel to ask him. They didn't say, Samuel, pray for us. Seek God's wisdom. Tell us why we have been defeated. They leaned on their own understanding, and their rationale was clear. God was not with us. So their solution to the problem was obvious. We need the Ark. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was something that God had prescribed for the Israelites. It was a box made of wood, overlaid with gold, with golden angels on top, golden cherubim. And it was a symbol of God's presence with his people. When the Israelites were at camp, the Ark of the Covenant went into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. But when they were on the move, 
The ark was on the move as well. And when they went into battle, the ark was with them. And it was a symbol because God was often with them on their marches and in their battles. And the ark was there. It became a symbol of victory with God's presence. It played a prominent place in these things. In the, in the book of Numbers, um, we're told that whenever the ark left the camp, Moses would say, rise up, O Lord, and may your enemies be scattered before you. Because God was with his ark. And at Jericho, you may remember that the ark played a prominent place in that victory as well. God had commanded that the Israelites march around the city of Jericho seven times. In a particular formation, the priests were to go in front, blowing their trumpets before the Lord. And immediately behind the priests was the ark, God's presence. Behind that, all of God's people. And God brought victory over Jericho. And so, clearly, if they were defeated, it's because God was not with them. And if God was not with them, then they needed to bring God with them. And so they got the ark. They fetched the ark. They said, bring the ark. And the ark came, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, the sons of Eli, took the ark and brought it into camp. And now there was a God in the camp. Or so they thought. So both sides thought. As soon as the ark came into the Israelite camp, it says that there was a great shout. Some of you may know that in October of last year, the Tennessee Volunteer football team defeated the Alabama Crimson Tide with a last-second field goal. It was giving, gave the Tennessee Volunteers their first victory over Alabama in 15 years. And at the, in the context of that game, the Tennessee fans gave such a shout that there was a record-breaking noise level in that stadium, 125 decibels, which is just under the sound of a rocket engine from about 100 yards. And such was the shout in the Israelite camp. It says that when the ark came into the field of battle, there was such a great shout that the, that the earth resounded because they knew they had victory in hand. And the Philistines took notice too. They, they heard the shouting and said, "What? we just beat them. What are they shouting about? When they realized that the ark of the covenant was there, they became afraid. They became concerned. They said, woe is us, for there's a God in the camp. Woe is us. Nothing has ever happened like this to us. What shall we do? These are the gods that defeated Egypt, that poured out the plagues. These are the ones that, what, what, what shall we do? But they were concerned, they were afraid, but they weren't deterred. In fact, they were emboldened. They said, they said, oh, men, oh, Philistines, take courage. Be men, fight like men. That's our only hope, is to fight like men. And so fight they did. And the battle raged. And both sides felt like there was a God in the camp, but the question is, was was God in the camp? If he was, he chose not to fight. He left his sword in its sheath. He left his arrows in the quiver. He was silent before the slaughter. 
because the Philistines fought and there was a great slaughter. The slaughter was far worse than the first battle. About 10 times as many soldiers lost, not 4,000, but 30,000. The priests of the Lord were killed, Hophni and Phinehas, in accordance with the will of the Lord. And what was worse was that the Ark of the Covenant, the sign, the symbol of God's presence, was captured. And as the news reached Shiloh, the response was clear that they understood the true tragedy of the situation. First, there was Eli, the priest, no longer in the house of the Lord, but now sitting by the road, and he hears of the news. 30,000 Israelite soldiers slaughtered. Your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, killed. And the ark of the Lord captured. And Eli, now this frail and feeble man, held up in dishonor by the Lord, very old, blind, fully blind, and, and overweight from feasting on the Lord's sacrifices. When he hears of the capture of the ark of the Lord, he fell over backwards, broke his neck, and was immediately killed. And then, almost as a postscript, we are introduced to a brand new character in this story. Apparently, Phineas, the son of Eli, that wicked and corrupt and adulterous priest, was married. And his wife was pregnant, very pregnant. When she heard of the death of her father-in-law, Eli, and the death of her husband, Phineas, and the capture of the Ark of the Lord, she went into labor and she gave birth. And what should have been a moment of celebration was a moment of agony. Like Hannah before her, she named her son. But Hannah's son was a son of hope. Hannah named her son Samuel. I asked of the Lord, and he gave him to me. But this woman names her son Ichabod. Ichabod, which means, where is the glory? And Hebrew repetition is important. And we hear three times, three times that the glory has departed from Israel. First, in the naming of the son, Ichabod. Second, in the narrator's explanation, this name means the glory has departed of Israel. And then third, in the, the mother's explanation of the name, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Their hope, their only hope, was being in the protective presence of the power of the Almighty God. And that was symbolized by the ark of God. Now that the ark of God was captured into the hands of the enemies, their hope went along with it. The glory had departed. God was no longer with his people. It was a moment of lament. And my dear friends, this is an unhappy story in the history of Israel. It is an unhappy story of defeat. And like the Israelites, it's important for us it's good for us to ask, why? Why would the Lord allow such a defeat at the hands of the enemies, of his enemies? What we need to realize is that this is not 
the end of the story. This is merely the beginning of the story. So often we are caught in looking at our experience and we have only the beginning of the, the story. If we were to look just a bit further in our Bibles, maybe look at the trailer of parts two and three of this story of the ark, we would get a glimpse of what actually happens, what God's purposes are in this defeat. And we can see three key purposes that God has in store for this event. The first is God was seeking the purity of his people. Now, the, in case you don't know the story, what will happen is that this ark will wander its way through the Philistine territory and eventually make it back to the land of Israel and Immediately, Samuel shows back up in the scene. And Samuel's first act, back with his people, is to lead God's people in repentance. And he says to them, If you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then put away your foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands, hand of the Philistines. Apparently, the Israelites were double-minded. They had their hearts fixed on foreign gods and the Lord their God. And God is a jealous God, visiting the iniquity on the children, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love him. And he wanted to purify his people and the Lord. So often, we saw it throughout the book of Judges, the Lord will bring his people low in order that they might return to him so that he might lavish his love and his salvation and his forgiveness and his grace. But we must serve him only. And so he desired to, he was seeking the purity of his people. The second was God was reserving glory in victory for himself. So the Israelites were double-minded. They were serving multiple gods. No telling where they would describe the glory of their victory should God have given them victory. But God will share his glory with no one, no other God, and no other thing. No other thing. Because do you notice what they say? They say, said, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant from, from Shiloh to here, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. God would get, not share his glory with his Ark. Yes, he had associated his presence. It was a symbol of his presence. And yet the ark was a piece of wood. It was powerless. It wasn't the ark that saved. It was God that saved, God who delivered. It was God's power. And he wouldn't share his glory with the ark. And he wanted to demonstrate to his people that they do not control him. Simply because Israel chose to bring the ark into their camp, God was not guaranteeing victory. He was not promising that he would fight for them. In fact, just the opposite. But third, and probably the most important thing that we need to realize is that God was preparing for an even greater victory than what the Israelites had in mind. The Israelites were focused on this battle between the Philistines and Israel right there on the battlefield. And yet God had a bigger, grander, war that he was fighting. 
The ark will go into Philistine territory. The Lord will defeat Dagon, the god of the Philistines. God will afflict all of the Philistine people. The Lord will reclaim the hearts of his people. And all those things, my dear friends, happened because of that defeat on the battlefield and the capture of the ark. God had far greater purposes, a far greater victory in store than what was immediately evident. And beloved, this is a clear picture pointing ahead to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's people were given great and grand promises of a coming Messiah, of a coming King who would establish his kingdom, who would establish his eternal rule, his eternal peace. And they longed for it, and yet they had already faced a massive defeat. Rome had come into the land of promise, had subjugated God's people. They yearned for the Messiah to come. And when Jesus came, there was a great shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David. They yearned for Jesus to mount his royal steed, brandish his sword, and defeat the power of Rome and usher in his perfect peace. And, beloved, so do we. And yet what Jesus faced was an even greater defeat than what they had experienced in Rome. Because the Israelites wanted him to usher in his reign, to wipe out the Romans. And Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put away your sword. He said, Peter, if I want to, I can call upon legions of angels. I can win this fight if I need to. And yet he would not fight. He was silent before the slaughter. He told the Roman leaders, my kingdom is not of this world. He gave himself up to defeat, to capture, to mocking, to torture, to shame. He gave himself up to be hung on a tree in public mockery, public disgrace. And beloved, God's word says that he is the glory of God. That we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. And the glory of Israel departed that day. The glory of Israel hung on a tree and was mocked and spit on and crucified. And he was taken down off that tree and thrust into a grave and cut off from the land of the living. The glory of Israel departed. But beloved, God had a far greater purpose than we could ever imagine in the cross because that moment of defeat was God's greatest victory and our greatest hope for ultimate victory, beloved. Because in that event, these same three things we see, God had desired the purity of his people, not a momentary victory, but true purity. Because by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, 
We are justified by his blood, not just forgiven once with a sacrifice that needs to be given over and over and over again, but justified perfectly, finally, eternally righteous and pure in his blood. He, he was desiring purity for his people. It was, a, it was a victory that only God would get the glory for. He wasn't seeking a, an, a earthly victory with the power of military might, but through the weakness of the cross, the weakness of sacrifice, the weakness of giving himself up for the sake of his people. Only God in the flesh could be perfectly righteous and perfectly uphold God's righteous law. Only God in the flesh could truly bear the weight of the debt, God's infinite debt, or the, the infinite debt that God's people had incurred against the holy God. Only God himself could endure the infinite wrath of God poured out on those sins. And only God could raise his son from the dead. Only God gets the glory through this victory. And beloved, it was a far greater, far more expansive victory than we could even ask or imagine. Because it wasn't just a temporary peace, an earthly peace, something that's going to pass away. Even a spiritual aspect. Colossians says that in the cross, Jesus, God disarmed the rulers and authorities by putting them to open shame as Christ was mocked in his crucifixion. It is an eternal peace, an eternal victory that is accomplished for all of God's people because the our Savior who died is also the one who was raised, who was ascended into the heavenly realms and is awaiting until all things are put under his feet and until he comes and accomplishes ultimate victory, perfect victory, perfect peace, perfect justice, perfect salvation. And beloved, where you and I are, where we, where we sit in this story as we are in between these two great events in redemption, between the ascension, enthronement of our victorious Savior, and the moment when he comes back and grants us ultimate victory. And until that time, we've been told that the battle lines have been drawn and we will be in the midst of a fight. We will be in the midst of this conflict, like what we see here. And we should affirm the fact that there are really only two sides to this fight. You are either on the Lord's side, on the side of the Lord Jesus Christ, or you are not. You are his enemy. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, you are his. You are, he is your king. You are among his people. His powerful presence and protection are promised. His ultimate victory is yours. You can be assured of that. And if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, then God's word is clear that you are an enemy of 
Christ. You are at war with him, and he is at war with you. And unless you repent, my dear friends, you will be defeated. But the good news for you and for me is that God loves his enemies. There will come a day where God's ultimate victory will be accomplished. And there is no more room for grace or mercy for those outside of his kingdom. But today is not that day. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of God's mercy. He extends to you his grace in his son, Jesus Christ. God loved the world so much that he sent his son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall never perish, but have eternal life. But the opposite is also true. That for all those who do not believe in him shall most certainly perish and shall certainly be defeated. But my dear friends, what we have to hear is that even when we are on the Lord's side, God does not promise that we will have victory in every battle. We will face defeat in the midst of this ultimate war. There will be battles that we lose. And I know that you feel it. I know that you've felt those losses because I have felt those losses. And it leaves us wondering, rightfully, why? Why is the Lord allowing us to lose these battles? Where is the Lord? I thought he is with us. Is he not our shield? We need to ask. But we need to ask the Lord. The Lord gives us his answers by speaking to us in his word. And as we speak to him in prayer, and he doesn't always give us the fullness of the answer up front. He, he reserves the details until much later, until the, the story is unfolding. But there are three things that he can encourage us with from this story. The first is that God is purifying his people. He's purifying you. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, you have been purified by the blood of Jesus Christ perfectly. And yet in the course of time, God is conforming you to the image of his son. He is sanctifying you. That is making you holy, conforming you to be like Jesus. And often that happens in the context of the defeat of suffering and struggle and the anguish of pain. We need to affirm that for us who are in Christ Jesus, God does not punish us for our sins because our sins have been perfectly punished in Jesus Christ. But God does discipline us. He, he like a loving father, he knows what we need. He knows where he's taking us and he will get us there. And often that comes by not giving us what we want or what we expect so that he could teach us the fullness of himself and faith in Jesus Christ. So he's purifying us. He's sanctifying us. Um, a second reason is he reserves the glory for himself, a glory of salvation. Far too often, part of our sanctification is we're so reliant on us getting our way and having things be 
the way we want in this life with no delay in the way we want. And God is not beholden to our desires or our expectations. God is sovereign. God's will is perfect. His, his mind is far above ours. His thoughts are not ours. And his ways are not ours. And yet he's conforming us to his mind as he works in us and to his will. And often we will strive for what we believe to be the Lord's fights and the Lord's results in our ways. And God will say, no, I will get the glory. And often we have to wait to see those results that we, we know God desires because he tells us in his word until he brings it out in a way that only he can, in a way that is so clearly him, that we give him the praise and the adoration because our, our minds are far too ready to give credit to ourselves or to anything else other than the Almighty God. But God wants the glory. But also, beloved, we need to remember that God has a has a a purpose and a plan and a story that is far richer, far greater, far more expansive, far more deep than we could ever ask or imagine. And in the midst of the the struggles and the fights and the conflicts and the defeats we may not see the fullness of God's plan, but we will one day. We may not know how it's going to work out or what is the path to get there. We cling by faith because we know, or we don't know so much, we do know that God is a God of justice and that God's justice will prevail. No one will get away with anything. We know that God is a God of perfect peace. And we will have that perfect peace. We know that God is faithful. Every one of his promises will come to fruition. And we will be vindicated. And we will be perfectly holy in his sight because he has promised these things. And so we must cling by hope, cling by faith, in the work of our God, in Jesus Christ. And when we see it, beloved, when we, when we see the fullness of the story, I'm confident that we will look at it and we will say, what a God we have. Who is a God like you who can work these might, work this might, work these wonders? Worthy are you, O oh God, to receive honor and praise and glory and strength. For you have done these things, and only you are God. We will not be able to help but to burst out in joyful, glorious, and eternal song because he has done it. And beloved, until that time, we would be good to imprint on our hearts the words of the, the hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, which says this, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, 
He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Beloved, we have a God who is good and who is for us and who has promised to never leave us or forsake us. His glory will be with us, and that is our hope. Dear friends, the Israelites' lament was Ichabod. The glory has departed, but our hope is in the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the glory of God. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, and he has come to be with us, and he has come to dwell with us, and he will never leave us nor forsake us. He will be victorious, and in him will be our victory, and we will be able to dwell in the glory of his presence forever and ever. Amen and hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your sovereign power. We praise you for your sovereign providence. Oh, help us to grow in our faith. Help us to grow in our trust. Oh, when we see things not going in a way that we uh, know to be against your will, when we see things that uh, disquiet our souls, help us to calm and quiet our souls in the shadow of your grace. Thank you for Jesus and what you have done in him, the surety of our salvation and our victory in what has been accomplished in the life and death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help him to be our sole and only hope. Help us to look ahead to the glory of eternity in your presence, in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.